This is a Rooster Teeth production. Southwest Airlines, a United States-based budget airline, has been flying since 1971. In those nearly 50 years, the airline has only had nine incidents with four fatalities and only two destroyed aircraft. With such a stellar safety record, we began wondering what exactly happened that led to a fatal incident with this airline. We dug into the information, compiled it all for you. Find out what we learned on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. I'm Gus. I'm here with Chris. Hello, Chris. I'm ready to learn about Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines. Before we get to that, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media. I know I always say it. It's because you haven't done it yet. Go follow us on Twitter <laughs> or Instagram at Black Box Down Pod. I've done it, Gus. I did it. You did it? It's great. I love it. Good. Uh, we'll definitely have some photos uh, from this episode. So we're doing something a little different this episode. I'm sure you can tell. Uh, we're not covering just a single incident. I've always been fascinated with Southwest Airlines. They're a pretty ubiquitous airline here in the United States. I'm not sure how familiar our international listeners are with them. But it's a, a budget airline. Uh, that's based out of Dallas, not Dallas-Fort Worth, the Dallas Love Airport, but they don't operate on a traditional hub and spoke system like other airlines do. They just kind of fly wherever it needs to go, <laughs> wherever they need to go. They don't have like hubs that they fly out of. And they also only fly Boeing 737 airplanes, which is great because it makes maintenance easier for them. Yeah, it's weird that you say uh, budget airlines because I, I guess I just think of it just like any of the others, but a little more convenient because you could... <laughs> change your flights well i guess they got their start you know really pushing that angle and they still kind of do it you know they don't charge for bags and you know there's oh. no change fees stuff like that but they also have weird quirks like you don't get an assigned seat yeah that's true when you check in you know they give you a number and that's what number you are getting on the plane uh, so they do things a little differently but it's worked for them you know they, they're, yeah. they're a hugely successful airline like i said been around for nearly 50 years now have a very amazing safety record as well uh, they've only had, like I said, a handful of incidents. So we're going to focus on the four incidents that had fatalities with them in today's episode. It's impressive because I feel like we've covered some other like budget airlines and they have bad records. Oh, yeah. Like the one I did on the uh, Peruvian airline, which doesn't exist anymore. And then, right. then there was that one that uh, had the really old plane. Value jet? Yes, value jet. Yeah. Yeah. Typically, you know, when you think budget airline, that uh, really <laughs> makes you worried about the quality of the flight you're going to get. But I've flown Southwest many times and I've never mm -hmm. once been worried about getting on a Southwest plane. You know, I think that uh, they do an impeccable job. They've got a, an amazing reputation. So, like I said, throughout their history, they've had four fatalities and, you know, what did I say, nine incidents. And I wanted to give a little bit of reference here. So, since the year 2000, so this is only in the last 20 years, mm -hmm. American Airlines has had 13 incidents. Delta has had five, United has had four, and British Airways has had six. So, Southwest has had nine in 50 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a really, really great. They're consistently rated one of the safest airlines by, um, you know, organizations that rate airline safety. So, that's why I was kind of interested in it. And one of these incidents takes place in Austin. Oh. So, we'll get to that one uh, in a bit. So, first off, we're going to cover Southwest Airlines Flight 1763. This flight took place on August 11th, 2000. And it was a flight from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City on a Boeing 737-300. Like I said, Southwest only flies Boeing 737s. So it's a pretty short flight, Las Vegas to Salt Lake City. It's uh, not very far at all. At 9.20 p.m., this flight took off from Las Vegas and it was a little behind schedule. When they reached cruising altitude, three flight attendants started to serve drinks. 
While waiting for his drink, a passenger named Bradshaw noticed a young man who was 19-year-old Jonathan Burton and thought that uh, Burton had a worried or frantic look on him. As Bradshaw was getting his drink, Burton got up from his seat, walked over to the cart, and took the drink off the tray and walked back to his seat. The flight attendant reprimanded him a little bit, saying he should have waited for his turn. Yeah. But a few minutes later, he got up again and walked to the back of the plane, where he started looking through the cabinets in the galley. And he grabbed a couple packs of peanuts that he found and walked back to his seat again. What? Yeah, strange behavior. Yeah. Some other passengers noticed his odd behavior, but didn't think much of it. I mean, imagine if you were on this plane and you saw this, you'd be like, wow, that guy's really rude. That's really, yeah. you know. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> right. I know if I saw this, I wouldn't, you know, I'd definitely think something odd, but I wouldn't do anything. So several minutes later, Burton got up again and he started to pace up and down the aisle. Uh, one passenger thought he might have been looking for an open lavatory and saw that he had an agitated look and was mumbling to himself. Uh-oh. Burton then made it to the front of the plane, raised his voice, and started kicking at the cockpit door. What? Yeah, he managed to kick out an emergency escape panel in the door and started to push himself through head first, saying, someone needs to fly this plane. W- Remember, this is pre-September 11th, so cockpit doors were not as reinforced as they are now. Oh. That's why he's able to do this. Yeah. The pilots managed to push him out, and a flight attendant approached him to try to calm him down. And eventually, he was forced to an exit row by several male passengers, where they surrounded him. Suddenly, someone yelled out that he was going for the handle on the exit row door. What? Yeah, and the men that surrounded him started to grab him and hold him down, uh, and Burton eventually sat back down in a seat. Uh, And I know that sounds bad, but a quick side note, it's Uh actually extremely difficult, if not impossible, to open an emergency exit door uh, when a plane is at altitude due to the pressure difference. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, typically there's low pressure outside and high pressure inside the plane, so things want to get pushed out. That's why when, you know, there's decompression, things get blown out of the plane. Typically, when you open these emergency exit doors, you have to pull them in. So you're pulling against all of that pressure. Gotcha. Okay. I get. So that's good, right? right? It's, it's designed so that someone doesn't accidentally open it at cruising <laughs> altitude. But still, you don't want to see that. I mean, obviously, someone's not thinking correctly if they're trying to open an emergency exit door at cruising altitude. Yeah. So as the plane began descending into Salt Lake City, Burton lost it. Burton just went crazy. He jumped up and started spitting on people and throwing punches. Oh. Several men then grabbed him by his arms and legs and pinned him to the floor. And some of them were standing on his limbs. But this made the passengers go into a frenzy. And they started yelling things like, hurt him, beat him up. Oh, what? Right. It quickly became an even worse situation. Like a mob mentality thing. Right. And while Burton is on the ground, some of the men continued to punch and kick him. The plane landed after 11 p.m. And when officers boarded the plane, they found five or six people restraining Burton. Their feet were on his head, throat, and arms. And he was bleeding from the mouth. He had a bruised forehead and contusions on his chest. But they did report that he was breathing. And although Burton was motionless, Passengers warned the police that he would fight again, so they handcuffed him and took him off the plane. Burton was taken to a local hospital where he was declared dead just after midnight. What? Right. An FBI agent thought that he went into cardiac arrest because his actions were consistent with drug use, but the autopsy revealed that he died from asphyxiation. Oh my god. They killed him on that plane. His death was ruled a homicide. Oh my God. But U.S. Attorney Paul M. Warner did not file charges because he believed the passengers acted in self-defense. And to this day, it's unclear why Burton went crazy. There were trace amounts of cocaine and THC found in his body, but it's not believed it was enough for him to do something like this. This incident was just chalked up as a case of air rage. So, I mean, it seems pretty apparent that he was in mental distress. He had something going on. Yeah. But the passengers essentially killed him. That is insane. How many were there that I guess was anyone charged with anything? No, not at all. Was there anyone who was, I guess, more responsible, like like more violent with him? Or is it just 
unclear or they never really looked into it? It's just really unclear. I think that they probably did not really want to investigate too much because he had been acting erratically and the the, the excuse was that the passengers acted in self-defense. Yeah. I mean, I understand being afraid like that guy is going to he's trying to take down the plane he's endangering everyone so i understand people reacting and being afraid and wanting to restrain but that's crazy but like the the beat him up (laughs) that's insane right like people start screaming like it's like some primal thing got activated in people and you know they wanted to see someone get hurt damn so i mean this was the first case of a death on a southwest flight but it wasn't even the airline's fault yeah i mean there's an argument that the the crew could have calmed the passengers down in some way i don't know but that's not it doesn't it's not really on them well and like i said this was before september 11th and these days i think people are a lot more um how can i say it? they're a lot more aware on flights and they you yeah. know they, they might act a lot more quickly if they think that the plane's in danger or someone's trying to take it over so i, I wonder how people would react nowadays yeah this is a weird question but there's not like a restraining seat now or anything in case someone is violent or having an issue where they could uh, restrain them because i know on the episode we did about hijacking we talked about ways that uh, they could stop hijackers and but i don't know if there's anything newer since then so airlines all take different approaches to unruly passengers uh, some have hands-off policies which rely on diverting the flights mm-hmm. some airlines issue tasers to crew to handle security oh. on board but you know obviously these are risky you know you don't want to have things like this on uh on a flight um british airways recently launched a new system that they call the total resolve quick restraint system which looks like straps like something you would strap into the back of a truck like when you're moving you know those big straps you put in the back of the truck it looks Uh like straps like that that they put around the arms of a passenger and basically restrain them to a seat so that they can't move well that sounds like a good way to handle it right and they also have like ankle restraints so that they, you know, attach their feet to the seat in front of them so they can't really move. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this is not a standard. This just I think it seems like every airline has an ad hoc system for how they uh, how they operate. Huh. I mean, I've even seen photos of passengers on planes who are like taped to seats <laughs> where what? like because they don't have the, the airline crew doesn't have any system to take care of a situation like this. Yeah, they should have. Some sort of restraints, not nothing violent or where it's going to hurt someone. Well, I think the worry is how do you get the restraints on someone who's having an incident like this without putting the crew in danger as well? Mm, yeah. Because it's easy to say, well, oh, they should tie him up. Like, it's a different thing when you're dealing with someone who's being violent. Yeah. It's a tough situation to figure out. Okay. So uh, we move on to our, our, our second incident here that we're going to cover. This is Southwest Airlines Flight 1248. And this flight took place on December 8th, 2005. This route was from Baltimore to Las Vegas, and it had stops in Chicago and Salt Lake City. And the plane used again was a Boeing 737. This one was a a 737-700. And at the time, it was about a year and a half old. And the flight was crewed by Captain Bruce Sutherland, who was 59 and had 15,000 flight hours, and First Officer Stephen Oliver, who was 34 and had 8,500 flight hours. As they started to approach Chicago Midway, they were forced to circle for a bit due to a snowstorm that had reduced visibility to less than one mile. Remember, this is... Chicago in December, so they got bad weather. Mm -hmm. At around 7.15 p.m., they attempted a landing, and the snow on the ground was at a height of 8 inches, but the runway was reported to be clear of snow. The winds at the time favored a landing on runway 13 center, but the visual range was below landing minimums, so the crew were forced to land on the opposite direction of that runway, which was 31 center. But 
that would give them a tailwind, which is not ideal for landing. Yeah. As they landed, the 737 started to skid. It overran the runway, crashed into a barrier wall surrounding the airport. The nose gear collapsed and the plane came to rest on a public street. Shoot. Yeah, the plane hit at least three cars, giving serious injuries to nine occupants of the cars and killing one six-year-old boy. Oh, no. The passengers on board the aircraft were also injured. So, yeah, the the person who died in this incident was a a six-year-old boy who was in one of the cars just driving by the airport. Oh, my. And then you just get hit by a plane. That's insane. Not what you expect. Yeah. So this one's going to be a little complicated. I apologize. We're going to do our best to try to break this one down, but this is going to get a little technical, and I'm going to apologize in advance here. The NTSB conducted this investigation, and it noted that the 737-700 was a next-generation model that was equipped with the latest anti-skid and braking technology. However, Southwest had only recently begun using auto brake systems, and that pilot training on proper use of auto brakes was inadequate. The NTSB also found that the plane touched down with 4,500 feet remaining on the runway. And with the conditions the plane was in, it needed 5,300 feet in order to stop safely. And the tailwind was at 8 knots, which exceeds the limit of a 5-knot tailwind. Like I said, tailwind not ideal for landing. Uh, The NTSB made a statement saying, The flying pilot stated he could not get the reverse thrust levers out of the stowed position. The first officer, after several seconds, noticed that the thrust reversers were not deployed and activated the reversers without a problem. Hmm. Flight data recorder information reveals that the thrust reversers were not deployed until 18 seconds after touchdown, at which point there was only about 1,000 feet of usable runway remaining. Yeah, they landed with not enough runway in front of them with a tailwind, and the pilot did not deploy uh, thrust reversers uh, until 18 seconds after they touched down. Okay, a tailwind is a wind that's blowing... The direction that the plane is flying, landing, so it's pushing it? Correct. Okay, and then thrust reversers would be things pushing the opposite direction, like thrusting. Yeah, you know how when, uh, I'm sure, you know, when you've been on a plane and you land, the engines get way louder? Yeah. That's the thrust reversers activating yeah. to slow the plane down. Okay, so they're just pushing backwards. Yeah, in, in fact, if you're ever on a plane, and if you've never done this, when you land, you should look out the window at the engines. You'll see that they transform a little bit Oh. in order to reverse that thrust. That's cool. Yeah, like little panels open up, and it's actually really cool to see. You should uh, take a look. If, you, if, you've ever, if you've never noticed them next time you're on a plane, whenever that is, uh, when you land, take a look at the engines. You, you'll, you'll see the thrust reversers activating. So the NTSB also discovered that air traffic controller told the pilots that the braking action for the first half of the runway was good, but for the second half, it was poor. And it turns out the controller did not give all the information because he didn't take into account the aircraft type from which this braking reports came from. So braking action varies on the aircraft type, the equipment used, the personnel experience and weather conditions, and the reports that the air traffic control gave flight 1248 should not have been used as good information. The pilots used their onboard performance computer to see if they could land safely. And we've talked about these performance computers before where they mm-hmm. plug in all the variables. And according to their calculations, they could, however, (laughs) their calculations were based on two assumptions. One, that the tailwind is lower than what it actually was. And two, that the thrust reversers were deployed on time upon landing, which they were not. The pilots were not aware of these assumptions, and Southwest had not provided sufficient recurrent training on how to make these calculations. So the pilots were wrong in what they calculated. It turns out that Southwest Airlines had a policy that required pilots to consider more critical braking action assessments when they receive mixed braking action reports. I told you, this is an incredibly (laughs) uh, technical uh, bit of information. We're going to try to break it down here in just a bit. 
However, it was found that the accident pilots were unaware of this policy and therefore didn't consider it while assessing landing conditions. The NTSB also found that three other company pilots landed before the accident with the same mixed braking action reports. When interviewed, company pilots revealed that they too either didn't adhere to the mixed braking policy or weren't aware of it. Southwest also had not routinely trained its pilots on following or understanding the mixed braking action report policy and it wasn't referenced in the company manuals. The NTSB concluded that even under these conditions, the plane could have stopped in time if the reverser were deployed on time and there was no malfunction found in the reverser system. So, you know, the pilot said he tried to deploy the reverser, but it was stuck. Uh-huh. They found no evidence of that. Even the first officer, when he went to deploy it, said he had no problem. So was it he he was doing it wrong or just didn't do it? We don't know. He just the, All we know is the end result, which is he did not deploy the reverse thrusters in a timely manner. Okay. And that directly resulted in a runway overrun. And the failure occurred because the pilot's first experience and lack of familiarity with the airplane's auto brake system distracted them from thrust reverser usage during the challenging landing. Hmm. So the speculation by the NTSB here basically is that they just got distracted with the plane's auto brake system and forgot to deploy the thrust reverser. Oh. So, I mean, I know that's a lot here talking about braking. I, I, I think a lot of people don't think about that. You know, when the plane's coming in, the pilots have to know what condition is the runway in, like where can they really put the brakes on, you know, when can they not? And they have to rely on this information being conveyed to them so that they can properly assess all of the variables that go into it when landing in, in poor weather. Yeah. So... In summary, contributing to this accident were Southwest Airlines' failure to provide its pilots with clear and consistent guidance and training regarding company policies and procedures related to arrival landing distance calculations. Two, programming and design of its onboard performance computer, which did not present critical assumption information despite inconsistent tailwind and reverse thrust assessment methods. Three, plan to implement new auto brake procedures without a familiarization period. And four, failure to include a margin of safety in the arrival assessment to account for operational uncertainties. Contributing to the severity of the accident was the absence of engineered material arrestor system, which was needed because of the limited runway safety area beyond the departure end of runway 31 center. This is actually something interesting I want want to dig into a little bit here. They mentioned that there was no engineered material arrestor system on this runway. And I know that sounds strange, right? So we're going to explain what that is. Uh Uh-huh. These days, it's now recommended practice for any new runway to have a clear area of at least 1,000 feet at either end to allow for additional space in case of runway overruns like this. Chicago Midway was built before this rule existed, so it doesn't have that extra space, which is why, in this case, the, the plane overran and you know ran into a street. So this incident brought up the need for an engineered materials arrestor system at this airport. They call it a EMAS or EMAS. Mm-hmm. Basically, what this is, It's a material, it's made out of a high energy absorbing material that should safely stop an aircraft if it overruns the runway. It kind of looks like, have you ever seen photos or videos of like a car driving into like fresh cement or fresh concrete? You know how it like kind of sinks and like the material just kind of like oozes away and it really slows things down. It Uh looks like that. It's a material that is supposed to slow down the plane if it comes into it. A plane should never come into contact with this material. But if a plane does overrun a runway, this material is there to slow it down much more quickly. Okay, and does it damage the plane or just the runway? It's designed to be destroyed. If a plane hits that system, it's uh-huh. it's done. It has to be replaced. I, mean, I think it's supposed to slow down the plane with as little damage as possible. But at that point, if a plane is overrunning the runway, it's probably going to be experiencing damage anyway. Better that than going through the wall and hitting... Exactly. Yeah. And now there are actually um, these areas at Chicago Midway. They have now been installed. 
And this was also the first Southwest Airlines accident in the 35-year history of the company that resulted in a fatality. If you remember, the earlier incident was not an accident. Mm -hmm. And as a direct result of this accident, the FAA created a takeoff and landing performance assessment aviation rulemaking committee. And in 2016, this is way later, right? (laughs) In 2016, they finally implemented a new method for the community of uh, runway conditions. Uh, the airplane was fully repaired by September 2006 and was given a new tail number and Southwest retired flight number 1248. Yeah. Were there a lot of other injuries besides the one death? Like how, how ser- I guess it's how serious? There were several uh, minor injuries uh, on the aircraft as well. Uh, it really was not. Uh, no one on the aircraft suffered any major injuries. It was pretty mild for everyone on the plane itself. Okay. We got a different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say sure, and you never listen to it. Do not let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Uh, Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest, and when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells a story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, He's got a couple other episodes that are great. He's got one with Kobe Bryant uh, and one that just came out here pretty recently with Russell Brand. Really interesting stuff. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We've all heard for years it's important to have a diversified portfolio, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that kind of thing. But if you've ever looked at a breakdown of the most successful portfolios, you typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why is it one of the first asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify? Simple. It has not been available to investors like you and me until now, thanks to Fundrise. They make it easy for all investors to diversify by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or looking to add more, our friends over at Fundrise have you covered. And here's how. Fundrise is an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise has you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than a billion dollars in assets for over 130,000 investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged between 8.7 and 12.4% annual returns and investors have earned more than $79 million in dividends alone. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. Start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com slash blackboxdown to have your first 90 days of advisory fee waves. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash blackboxdown to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash blackboxdown. So our next one here, Southwest Airlines Flight 1380. This one is fairly recent. People, uh, if I, I remember those other two. Um, I was an adult when both of those happened. I remember both of those. Uh, happening. I was like, when those incidents happened, I was someone who was flying by that point. So I remember really taking note of them. But this third one we're about to talk about was much more recent. Uh, People probably do remember this one. It's uh, flight 1380. It was a passenger flight from LaGuardia in New York to Dallas Love Field uh, in Dallas, Texas. 
the flight took place April 17th, 2018. So just about two and a half years ago from the time we're releasing this. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was another Boeing 737-700. The flight was crewed by Captain Tammy Joe Schultz, who had 11,715 hours of flight time. And First Officer Darren Elisser, who had 9,508 hours. Little, let me g- give you a quick uh, bit of side notes here. Captain Tammy Joe Schultz should not have been the captain on this flight. Her husband is also a pilot for Southwest. Uh-huh. And this was his plane to fly. But he traded schedules with her because she needed to get where this plane was going. And, and you say she should because she wasn't experienced with this? No, plane? no. She's totally experienced with this plane. She just changed um, schedules with her husband. Oh, they just trade. It wasn't like she shouldn't have been. Like, no, no, it no. It was just, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's like you ever work and, you know, you need to trade a shift with yeah. one of your coworkers. Yeah. It's the same thing, except, you know, this is flying a plane. Okay. And then a little bit of trivia about Tammy Jo Schultz. She was one of the first female fighter pilots to serve in the U.S. Navy. So she had an extensive uh, aviation background. She flew okay. uh, with the military for several years and uh, then went on to fly commercially for Southwest Airlines. So at 11.03 a.m., the plane was climbing through flight level 320 when the left engine failed and started to break apart. Fragments from the inlet and cowling struck the wing and fuselage and broke a window, causing a rapid decompression. The crew put on their oxygen masks and Captain Schultz took over flying as First Officer Elliser began going through the checklists. The crew was having a little bit of difficulty controlling the plane due to the damage that was done. They started an emergency descent and diverted to Philadelphia. Captain Schultz initially planned to take a long final approach to make sure the checklists were complete, but she was told that some passengers were injured, so she sped up her approach for an expedited landing. When the plane was descending, the flight attendants put on their portable oxygen masks and started to move through the cabin to assist passengers. When they came to row 14, they found a passenger was sucked partway out of the broken window. Oh no. With the help of two other passengers, they were able to pull the victim inside and some other passengers performed CPR. Uh, The plane landed and the passenger was taken to a local hospital to be treated, but she passed away shortly after due to injuries she suffered on the plane. Oh no. How old was she? Uh, I believe the woman was uh, 43 years old. Was she just battered or? She had uh, contusions on her head and her neck. Oh no. From being, you know, uh, partially sucked out of the plane. And those injuries uh, were probably what contributed to her uh, passing away. So she was sucked out head first. Yes, her head and I believe one of her arms were sucked out of the plane. Okay. In my head, she the her feet were, and she was holding on. But no, yeah, I could see she got sucked out head first. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So officially, it was reported she died from blunt impact trauma of the head, neck, and torso. Like we talked about in previous episodes, she probably got sucked out and then just the the force of the wind and everything happening just uh, probably battered her against the plane. Uh, There were also eight other passengers on board with minor injuries. No one else really got that injured. I think in our recent episode in U.S. Airways 1549, we talked about how unusual it was these days, right? If that incident happened today, there'd be plenty of footage of it because smartphones are so ubiquitous Mm -hmm. everywhere. In this Southwest Airlines incident, Flight 1380, People started live streaming to Facebook from inside the flight while this incident was going on. What? Yeah, so you can look up on uh, you know YouTube and find videos that people took while on this plane with this uh, incident occurring. Wow. You know, this incident reminds me a little bit of Qantas Flight 32, which was the A380 where the engine failed and then, you know, bits of shrapnel pierced the wing and they had to circle and land back at Singapore. This reminds me of that where the engine failed, shrapnel came out, damaged the plane but in this case it also damaged the fuselage as well mm-hmm. which is why that um that window got blown out and it decompressed and that's why that woman uh, was partially sucked out of the plane so the ntsb uh found that there was a low cycle fatigue crack in the number 13 fan blade 
causing it to separate at the root, leaving the dovetail joint that remained in the fan disc. I'm going to read their findings here, which are you okay. know pretty technical, pretty wordy. The low cycle fatigue crack in the fan blade dovetail initiated because of the higher than expected dovetail stresses under normal operating loads. And this crack was most likely not detectable during the fluorescent penetrant inspection at the time of the fan blade sets, last overhaul, and subsequent visual inspections at the time of the fan blade relubrications. So he's just saying this fan blade was operating under normal loads and it was undetectable. There's no way anyone could have found this. Uh, the plane had just actually undergone maintenance very recently, right before this. And uh, there's, the, according to this finding, there's no way anyone could have seen it. That's almost, that's scarier. That's really actually. scary. Yeah. Like no one was at fault. No one in the maintenance side was at fault. Yeah. The fan blade fragments that traveled forward to the fan case along with the displacement wave created by the fan blade's impact with the fan case caused damage that compromised the structural integrity of the inlet and caused portions of the inlet to depart from the plane. Uh, we'll post a, a photo of what this engine looks like. This engine was really messed up after this incident happened. Portions of the fan cowl departed the airplane because, one, the impact of the separated fan blade with the fan case imparted significant loads into the fan cowl through the radial restraint fitting, and two, the associated stresses in the fan cowl structure exceeded the residual strength of the fan cowl, causing its failure. So just high impact, lots of stress, caused these failures and this uh, disintegration, essentially. Hmm. So this is, a, this is a freak accident, then. Extremely. So the National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a low cycle fatigue crack in the dovetail of fan blade number 13, which we said, which resulted in the fan blade separating in flight and impacting the engine fan case at a location that was critical to the structural integrity and performance of the fan cowl structure. This impact led to the in-flight separation of the fan cowl components, including the inboard fan cowl aft latch keeper, which struck the fuselage near a cabin window and caused the window to depart from the airplane the cabin to rapidly depressurize and the passenger fatality. So even this incident was like one freak accident led to another freak accident. Like yeah. the blade hit at just the worst possible point, which caused something else to separate, which hit the plane at the worst possible point, which caused a window to pop out, which caused for the passenger fatality. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in an interview with one of the passengers who survived this incident, who was on this flight, he says, you know, that there was one boom, you know, one small explosion, which presumably was, the, the engine failure, right? And then several seconds later, that's when the window popped out. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like it all happened at once. You know, the engine failed. There was several seconds and then the accident that caused the fatality. So the NTSB uh, recommends for the FAA to require Boeing to determine the critical fan blade impact locations on the engine fan cases and redesign the fan cowl structure on all Boeing 737 next generation series airplanes to ensure the structural integrity of the fan cowl after a fan blade out event. Once the fan cowl is redesigned, it needs to be installed on 737 Next Generation Series airplanes. So the FAA is just telling Boeing they need to redesign the cowling on this engine to make sure that if there is a failure, that this doesn't happen again, that yeah. these series of events cannot happen again. Like, yeah, the, the casing for the fan, essentially, right? Right, exactly. We will contain a, the broken piece better. Exactly. On the day of the accident, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow commended the pilots, crew, and fellow passengers who provided support and care for the injured. And Southwest Airlines gave each passenger $5,000 and a $1,000 voucher for future travel with the airline. Captain Schultz published a book on the incident titled Nerves of Steel. Uh, this was also the first fatal accident involving a U.S. carrier since Colgan Air Flight 3407 in 2009, which is another incident that we covered. Hmm. So it was nine years between fatal accidents involving a U.S. air carrier. That's how safe 
air travel is. It was nine years? Yeah, because the Colgan Air was in 2009. And then after that, there were no fatalities involving a U.S. carrier until this one in April of 2018. Wow. That just reinforces how safe uh, flying is. Okay, now we're going to cover our last incident, which I kind of teased at the top. This is the one that took place uh, here in Austin. This is uh, Southwest Airlines Flight 1392. It was a flight from Dallas Love Field to Austin Bergstrom. And this happened this year. This was on May 7th, 2020. Whoa. The flight was normal. Everything was fine. And at 8.12 p.m., right before the plane landed on runway 17 right, the crew reported they saw an unauthorized individual on the runway. Then, a uh. short time later, one of the pilots on board reported seeing a person on the runway shortly after the plane touched down. Uh, the airport was searched, and an airport operation vehicle found a body on the runway, and that person was declared dead at the scene. What? The airplane was inspected, and damage was found on the left engine housing, but authorities have not confirmed if this damage is related to the impact of the person found on the runway. This person was not authorized to be on the runway, and this accident and security breach is actually still under investigation by the FAA, uh, local law enforcement, and the Transportation Security Administration. Wait, so did they run over someone? That's the speculation, that some person ran out onto the runway and got hit by the left engine of the plane as it was landing. Wow, so they don't know why he they don't know anything. I guess they can't release it yet because it's, it's still under investigation. So It's still ongoing. Um the current speculation that's been kind of leaked is that the person was committing suicide and ran out onto the runway to get hit by the plane on purpose. And I think, you know, they're intentionally being even more kind of hush-hush about this investigation because someone got onto the runway. Like, think about how crazy that is. Like, someone breached yeah. airport security and ran out to where the planes are. I wonder if they climbed a fence on the perimeter and, like, snuck in. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, airports are big, right? And they have a lot of fence. In It's a difficult job, probably, to maintain security on all of that. Well, and you're not you're not expecting that. You're not expecting people to run onto the runway. Right. I mean, I can't imagine how, what was going through the pilot's mind at that point. Like, I, I, I imagine at first they probably thought their eyes were playing tricks on them. Yeah, and... Here's what I'll say about that is if you're trying to hurt yourself, that's a really, I guess, selfish way to do it. Because what would have happened if the pilot had reacted and freaked out and tried to turn the plane or something and, right. and then hit another plane and then killed a lot more people? If I recall properly, I think that the pilot did try, you know, within the boundaries of the runway, he tried to move a little bit away from the guy. But, yeah. you know, he was not able to. I can read you a little transcript uh, if you want here from uh, from them. Yeah. The pilot says, Tower, Southwest 1392, we believe there might be a person on the runway. The tower says, Southwest 1392, where exactly do you see the man? The pilot says, well, they, uh, they're behind us. They're behind us now. Oh. And the tower says, Southwest 1392, Roger, so you saw them just as you touched down? The pilot says, affirm. Wow. And, uh, you know, there's photos of this uh, engine. You know, obviously, I, there's no video or anything i wouldn't post that even if there was but um the engine is extremely damaged like i'm shocked at the amount of damage uh, a person was able to do uh to a plane engine did, did they get like sucked in i don't believe so i think they were just hit by okay the exterior of the engine but that's it i mean that's really it like we, there's really not much more information on that one like i said this incident only happened a couple months ago investigation's still ongoing they haven't released tons of info about it but that's all really that we know at this point. Uh, I think they really said it was a 22-year-old man who lived here in Austin. But really, it's been no no real further information than that. Yeah. Well, so out of the four deaths, only one was Southwest Fault. I would say two. Well, yeah. I mean, their fault, I guess you're talking about the runway uh, overrun. The runway, yeah. That. 
Yeah, and uh, presumably we. I guess what we don't know is under an investigation. But I guess the the fan one, if it's really true that there was no way to detect it, mm-hmm. then that's just a freak accident, right? I mean, they it seems like that was beyond their control. That it was a problem with the engine and with you know something that Boeing has to go back and redesign on the the engine cowling. But uh, yeah, it seems like Southwest was cleared of that incident as well. So, I mean, it just really is a testament to what a safe airline uh, Southwest Airlines is and, you know, what an amazing operation they run over there uh, as far as uh, safety goes. Yeah. Uh, but that's about it for this episode. A quick uh, rundown of um, several different incidents. This was intense. I was like a roller coaster. I was like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> some of these, I think, were not enough to warrant their uh-huh. own episode. And some of them might be. Who knows? Maybe we'll revisit some of them in the future. But I don't know for certain. I, th- I just wanted to kind of touch on all of these. I thought it was in- an interesting anthology to look at them all uh, together. Yeah. So um, we're taking a little break after this episode. Uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks off. Got to start doing some research, looking at our next episodes that we're going to cover. But uh, in the meantime, you know, go ahead and follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod for any information uh, about when we're coming back. It's gonna, I think we're coming back in four or five weeks. So it'll be just a short break, but we'll have some supplemental content that'll come out in the meantime to hopefully tie you over until then. Uh, and as always, if you like, you can head over to roosterteeth.com and check out our crash simulator videos. We've put out a couple of those where in Microsoft Flight Simulator, we try to recreate some of these incidents and show you, you know, what it would be like, what it, what the area looks like and uh, how long these incidents actually take to unfold. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really good insight. It Gus flies. I fly. I fly the planes. <laughs> I, I, I do my best to fly the planes. I'm not a pilot. Yeah. And uh, if you do those, yeah, it helps support us. So thank you for checking those out. We'll have a link in the description for all that. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you guys soon.